This is from Ephesians uh, 1, 11 through 14. In him we were all chosen. Think about that. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, good morning. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Dave Weed, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, And I know a lot of people have uh, asked if this was like a last second uh, with James' uh, father passing away just yesterday morning of uh, stepping in to um, to, uh, step in and filling in for James. Um, The answer actually is no. Um, I had been planning to, to speak this morning. James had wanted to be out at men's retreat, and so he asked me actually a few weeks ago to come and speak this morning so that he could stay at men's retreat. Um, for Sunday, so it just ended up working out that uh, James had everything covered on Sunday uh, with with me being here. But we definitely want to lift up uh, James and his family, and and certainly the uh, the Wagoners as well. Um, but we are continuing in the uh, the series that James has been in on Ephesians, uh, and we're we're moving ahead with that. And um, just to kind of do a, a really quick recap. Uh, of, of for this morning to go back over the last few weeks that James has filled in. Um, we are looking at um, the passage. Today we're going to look at uh, verses 11 through 14 of uh, the first chapter of Ephesians. Uh, but when we look at the passage, verses 3 through 14 are what would be known as a doxology, which is just simply an expression or praise to God. And, and this section is, is Paul kind of starting out his letter to the Ephesian people with a, with a praise. Um, and so we kind of look at it all as a whole, uh, and we're going to wrap the, the last part of it up this morning. Um, but Paul's intention of verses 3 through 14 wasn't so much a teaching opportunity. It was more of a, think about like a song to celebrate who God is right off the bat. Um, think of the song Amazing Grace. That's a, a song that so many of us know. And, and in Amazing Grace, it's certainly the lyrics have lots of truths that we can take away from it. Um, you know, I, was, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I uh, was blind, but now I see. I mean, we can relate those to, to, to biblical truths. But the purpose of the song is for praise. And that's much the same way Paul had intended this. Uh, and in the original Greek text, um, from verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. Uh, and and uh, uh, James talked about that a few weeks ago, how this is, it's meant to just be one flowing sentence. In our modern translations in the Bible, it's broken up into different sentences uh, just to make it more readable. But uh, if you think about this entire passage was meant to be one expression of praise to God. And it tells God's story. That's really what this is all about. It's telling God's story. Uh, but it ends with an affirmation of us sharing an inheritance that is beyond our imagination. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's pray. Lord, um, again, as Rob said, we lift up um, both the Lunds and the Wagoners. Boy, my heart just grieves um, for James. Uh, but uh, we know that uh, Jim is with you. We know that, uh, that, uh, 
the Lunds are celebrating because uh, of, of Jim's assurance in you, uh, in Christ, and, and being with you in, in paradise right now, and yet it still hurts. It's still grieving. Lord, as we look at your story this morning, as we look at what it means to be part of your story, to be part of in Christ, what all that looks like, Lord, um, help us to really wrap our heads around it because it is talking about what is to come. What Jim is facing right now, what he is experiencing right now, Lord, that is the hope of these passages for us to get excited about what is to come. So help set our hearts and our minds uh, to your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking about God's story, and I love stories. Uh, I, I grew up loving stories. In fact, um, one of my favorite storytellers, uh, unfortunately, you have to be well over the age of 50 to, to know this person, uh, Paul Harvey was a famous broadcaster. All the gray heads are nodding. You just gave your age away. Um, but Paul Harvey was a, a broadcaster a uh, long time ago, and he was a storyteller, and he did a lot of different features. Now, one of them was the news. He would, he would give the news, but he did it in a story-esque kind of way. Uh, and then he had different features where he would tell stories. And even to this day, every now and then, uh, especially at Christmas time, there's a famous Christmas story that Paul Harvey tells, and it'll be rebroadcast. Um, uh, and so you, know, you, may, you may not uh, know who he is, but you may recognize his voice if you heard that, that story and be like, oh, that's the guy. That's what I grew up. I loved his storytelling style. And I love stories like in movies. And I love stories about underdogs, like you know, the movie Rudy, uh, you know, about the Notre Dame uh, football player that, uh, you know, had no business being on Notre Dame football, but, but he ended up being a, a, one of the most famous Notre Dame players uh, that there was. Uh, or a unique perspective story, like you know, Disney's Toy Story, um, where it's, you know, who would have thought about an entire storyline just based on a children's toys? Um, or I love the against all odds stories, like the, the, uh, the true stories of uh, the men in Band of Brothers and what they faced and how they overcame so many odds stacked against them um, to make a difference in World War II. And what we see in Ephesians 3 through 14 is God's story as recounted by Paul. So he's telling us God's story. The entire section is God's story. Um, and we need to understand that it's not our story, it's God's story. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, let me tell you a story that is so incredible, that is so gonna blow your socks off that when it's all over, at the end of the story, the only possible outcome can be that we praise the Lord. That's what he's talking about. You know, it's, it's to, to put in perspective of how it's God's story, not our story, um, one of my favorite stories is Lord of the Rings. Uh, absolutely, Lord of the Rings. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the story, that's okay. Um, but when we look at that story, when we look at, look at the word of Tolkien, many people assume it's a story about Frodo because he's the lead character in the story, carrying the ring and ultimately you know, hoping to destroy it. The, the Lord of the Rings is not a story about Frodo. The Lord of the Rings is a story about a ring. And it's about the creation of the ring, all the different owners of the rings, the ultimate destruction of the ring, and what happened after the ring, ring was destroyed. The central character in the story is the ring. Frodo is just one of the, the players. Uh, and so that's much the way when we look at, 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 the, at this passage as God's story, we have to stop and realize this is God's story. And we live in a culture, and just by nature of our, our, our humanness, we always put ourselves at the center of, of a story and think it's always about us. 
Uh, and and what, what Paul's trying to explain to this is, you know, we're part of the story, and we're going to look at that and see that, but this is God's story. We need to realize that it's his autobiography, that it's he is the one who blessed us, chose us, predestined us for adoption, freely gave us his grace, redeemed us, forgave us, made known his will to us, sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and gave us a purpose for living. That's what we're going to look at in these verses. But we realize that he's the author and the actor of the story, so it's to him that we give all the glory. What we see is that he's been pursuing us even before we were born. Why? Because he wants us to be included in his story. And that's a very profound thought. Like I said, we oftentimes think that it's our story and God's one of the players, but if we step back and look at it from that different perspective, we see it in a whole new light. Rick Warren talks about this in the very opening lines of his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Church, or sorry, The Purpose Driven Life. It says this, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. You see, we need to discover our place in the story. And according to Ephesians, God wrote us into the script even before the creation. We were to be part of the story before the, this planet was ever created. God chose us to be set apart for him and his purposes, and the passages help us discover that we play a crucial role in God's story, although God is the primary actor. We are the supporting players, written into text by God's own hand. And the good news is, all of us are included. We are all included in the story. We're going to pick it up right in verse 11. And we see right away that God wants us in his story. And Paul addressed that we are all, meaning both Jew and Gentile, are to be part of this story. And that was a radical concept back in the time. You've got to understand, when this letter was written, of course, all the emphasis was on the Jewish people. And Paul here is trying to say, no, 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 this includes all of us. What we see in the passage behind us is if you pay really close attention to the pronouns, you see that there's a flip in there. Let me show you as we read it again. In him, we, and, and most theologians believe that he's referring to we as in the Jews okay, of the time. So in him, we, the Jews, were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works at everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, again, we, the Jews, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, sudden flip, meaning the Gentiles, because that's who Paul's talking to here, also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed you, the Gentiles, were marked with him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing, now get this, our inheritance, the Jews and the Gentiles together. Inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, Paul is celebrating the miracle of salvation and the union of Christ with the Jews and the Gentiles here. Radical for the time. See, the basic storyline of these verses from 11 through 14 is really clear. See, God is acting according to his will so as to form a people who exist for the praise of his glory. That's what he's looking for. 
So we see the sentence beginning in verse three, the very beginning of it, that says that we are to praise God. And then about 200 words later, we see the same verse ending with to the praise of his glory. It's bookmarked by this is all about us praising him. And moreover, the main point is that God has set apart a people who exist for his glory. That is our purpose. We exist for his glory. We are part of the story. And this applied to both the first believers and the later believers who are all now part of God's possession. And see, God has brought the people together to be his people. One of the, the intricacies of the, the Greek text is that we were, we were kind of the word signifying like we were purchased by lot. Think of if you go to an auction and, and you're not just buying that one thing, you get everything in that lot. And that's what God's saying is I have gathered all these people by lot and brought them to myself. And we see that we are now one in Christ. We are no longer separated, but we are one in Christ. And he's very, Paul is very clear in this, that the root of the miracle of being one in Christ is centered in being in Christ. That term, in Christ, is very significant. In verse 13 it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now we have to stop and think about this at a theological level because what we see in the term of being in Christ is used nine times just in this passage alone, either directly in Christ or an allusion to it. Paul, in all of his writings, uses the term in Christ 169 times. So it must be pretty important. It certainly was very important to to Paul about the concept of that we are in Christ. That is is a, a significant thing. What does that mean? Well, first of all, if we are in Christ, it indicates a very radical transformation. Of, of us as believers. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this is, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The hold is gone and the new has come. Speaking of a transformation of our lives by being in Christ. Being in Christ also means a, a, a radical reorientation. It moves us away from identifying with the, wor- the world and identifying with Christ. And we use Christ as a measure. James spoke on that last week of of we should be not worried about uh, that, oh, we're different from the world, but using the world as a measuring stick because the world is moving further away from God. If you say, oh, I'm a foot away from the world, that's great. Well, the world's moving away from God. No, our vision, like James shared with us last week, needs to be I am focused on Christ. That's my measuring stick. See, and being in Christ is far more descriptive than what we usually use the term of, of being Christian. You know that word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, we can certainly be in Christ when we say we are Christians. But so many use the Christian label in more of a cultural affinity. Um, I see this a lot. Um, I work with you know um, elderly, uh, and one of the, the things if they move into like a care facility is preferred religion. They click Christian. Doesn't mean that they're following the Lord. It just means you know I'm not these other religions, so that's the closest one to me. So I'll put that one down. 
And so they grab that label of Christian. But they're certainly not followers of Christ. Uh, and we can see that where people say, oh yeah, I'm a, in a, grew up in a Christian nation or I grew up in a Christian home. But they're not in Christ even though they may use the Christian label. Do you see the difference there? It's a subtle difference. And what Paul's saying here is what we really need to use as our marking is being in Christ to define who we are. The other thing of being in Christ is it brings unity. And the heart of our unity is that we are all becoming members of the body of Christ, regardless of what our background is. Being in Christ allows you to enter into the profound oneness of other believers, like in Galatians 3.28 where it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There it is, we are all one, and we are one, how? In Christ. It was, so it was so dynamic and so astounded the ancient world that uh, there's a, a theologian, Alexander McLaren, and he wrote this. Now, as you read this, it's gonna be up on the screen. Here's the thing I wanna talk about. He's talking about the profound impact that this had back in Paul's time when he delivered this letter. McLaren wrote this before 1900, in the late 1800s. And notice that there's gonna be some similarities to what our culture is experiencing right now today. McLaren said this, when these words were spoken, the then known civilized world was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation, like the crevices in a glacier, by the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface. Language, religion, national animosities, differences of condition, and saddest of all, differences of sex, split the world up into alien fragments. A stranger and an enemy were expressed in one language by the same word. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and his master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulfs, flinging hostility across. Then the benefits of the gospel came, then the barbarian, Scythian, bound and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all, in, all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all bonds. The in Christ is what conquers the world and makes a real difference. Does that sound familiar to what's going on in today's world? We so talk about the, the massive polarization and separation of our society, and we think that this is so new that nobody has ever had to go through this before. And what McLaren says is, that's what the, the Ephesians were going through at the time. And he relates it to the exact same thing that was happening in the late 1800s. And it's happening now. But what, he, what we take away from it is, how do we overcome it? by being in Christ. That was the radical message of the time in Ephesians. If we are one in Christ, we can come together and we bring people together and make a radical difference in the world around us. And then thirdly, our being in Christ brings us deep satisfaction. You know, the simple fact is we can't find satisfaction outside of Christ, although we try. We try really hard. We're so busy looking for satisfaction and happiness outside of Christ, it will try anything. There's an old Chinese proverb. It says this, if you want to be happy for one hour, get drunk. 
If you want to be happy for three days, get married. If you want to be happy for eight days, kill your pig and eat it. If you want to be happy forever, become a gardener. Now I can assure you that I've tried gardening and that last one is not true. (laughs) But it's as funny as it is, we realize that it's only Christ that can truly satisfy us. It's only Christ that can bring us deep fulfillment and human satisfaction. It's only in him that those things are found. See, Jesus himself said in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That is true satisfaction found in him when we seek to be in Christ. Okay, now it gets exciting. So that kind of sets the stage. Now it gets really exciting. Verse 13 says this, when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now sealing, uh, you've, you've heard this before, what they meant by seal was usually it was a, a, a wax that was impressed with a ring of some sort or some sort of marker. Now the Ephesian people that Paul's talking to right now, uh, it's a port city, and so they would have been used to the, uh, the transit of different goods or whatever, and so the, the the crates or whatever's being shipped would have been sealed to signify who is the owner. Uh, and so then there was ev- no, no doubt who is the owner um, of these items. Uh, you could also use, there's also, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the Greek text, it, it's also kind of like the same thing as an engagement ring. So when my wife and I decided to get married, I gave her an engagement ring, and that was a, a, a promissory of, you know, hey, here's a ring, and it signifies um, that now we are connected. Um, a, a, there's a, a seal that, that exists there. And so it is that we are receive the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, a seal denotes ownership. We are God's. No question next. That's what this passage says. We've been marked with the seal. Those who believe have been marked with the seal that is the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear this. The Holy Spirit is not the agent that gives the seal. The Holy Spirit is the seal. And that's really important to think about because we think about that, oh, the Holy Spirit's the one doing the sealing. No, the Holy Spirit is the seal. And as exciting as that is, it gets even better. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You see, the the Holy Spirit is not only a seal, but a deposit for our inheritance. Now, imagine all that the Holy Spirit has done for you. If if you believe and the Holy Spirit is now part of your life, uh, think about all that has gone on especially you know, if you're older and you can really think back through the years of how the Holy Spirit has walked with you, has changed you, you've been changed by the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times we see you know, what I was like before Christ and what I was like after Christ. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And, and some of us have amazing transformation stories of how the Holy Spirit has worked on our lives and made us radically different people in Christ as a result of that. We've been used by the Holy Spirit in so many ways, but what we see here is that the Holy Spirit is only a foretaste of what is to come. Think Baskin and Robbins. Okay, you walk into Baskin and Robbins and you're looking at all the different flavors and you think, hmm, I wanna sample that one. 
So the people behind the counter, they find the tiniest spoon known to man, they take a little scrape out of it, and they hand it to you. And you take this little taste, and you get a little glimpse of the taste of that ice cream flavor. And you think, yes, I like that. I'm gonna order now a three-scoop covered in chocolate sauce and whipped cream and sprinkles, and that is what I'm having. Now, your little micro spoon with a little sliver of, of ice cream gave you an idea of what that Sunday was gonna be, but it didn't have the chocolate sauce, it didn't have the whipped cream, it didn't have the sprinkles. That all came later. And that's really much what we see here. The Holy Spirit is just a sliver of what we're to come. He is our earnest money, so to speak. And, and even the Greek text, that's the exact term for it, is earnest money. That's what the Holy Spirit is to us. Just like we give earnest money saying, yeah, here's my promissory money, I'm putting a down payment on this, and I'm gonna get the rest of it later. God says the Holy Spirit is our earnest money for what is to come. It's like saying, here's a dollar, but there's a million more coming. But even that pales in comparison of, of trying to explain it. Because what God has set up for us, we can't grasp, we can't imagine. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 19, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, it says this up on the screen. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. That's what this passage is talking about. You have no idea what your inheritance is coming to you. But if you think the, the Holy Spirit is amazing, this is gonna blow your mind. That's what this passage is talking about. God says, I've redeemed you for my purchased possessions. As my beloved, you're going to heaven with me. That's great, but right now I'm giving you a deposit, and that's the Holy Spirit. It'd be like this. Picture that you are completely broke, you have no money, and along comes a guy named Bill Gates, and he adopts you. And what, what Bill says, he says, hey, when you're a little bit older, I'm gonna give you my inheritance, and it's $100 billion. And you think, that sounds amazing, but right now, I don't have any money. And Bill Gates says to you, no problem, you're gonna still get the $100 billion in the future, but right now, let me give you $10 billion to get by. Could you make it work? <laughs> That's what God is saying. This inheritance that is coming to us is so amazing, but right now I'm gonna give you a piece of it. You know what that piece of it is? The Holy Spirit. And that should be enough for us to stand back and go, wow, if the Holy Spirit is just a piece of the Tao payment, what is it gonna be like when we get to heaven? And that's what Corinthians is saying. We can't imagine it. We can't wrap our minds around it. Just like I can't wrap my mind around what $100 billion would look like. God chose us to be in this inheritance. Now, we know that redemption is already, yours. We saw, uh, is already ours through the sacrifice and the death of Christ. We saw that back in verse seven, a couple weeks ago. But one aspect of the redemption that remains to be realized is on the day of resurrection, God will redeem his own possessions. That's what we see in the text, is that we are set aside as his possession to be redeemed on the day of redemption. Uh, and the word 
possession also occurs in another passage uh, that Peter wrote, and it's in 1 Peter 2.9, where he again says, and this again includes Jews and Gentiles, he says that we are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possessions. See, the language of God's possession of people is also paralleled in Malachi 3.17. And this whole context, and we're gonna see this again in Ephesians, it, happened, it comes up again later, so we're just seeing a foreknote of this, is that Paul thought it was really significant and wanted to make really clear in this doxology that the God's people is included everyone. Jew, Gentile, everybody. We want to make that perfectly clear. We belong to God. It's no accident. God wants us. He wanted us since before the creation. We are God's. Amen? And our response should be praise. That's what Paul's saying here. This is God's story. He wanted you. He chose you. He wants everyone. He's going to give you a seal. He's gonna give you an inheritance. Our response should be praise. Now, I'll admit that sometimes I read you know, the, the Bible and, and the, the translation of the Bible is trying to keep it as close to the original um, you know, text and, and the original meanings of the specific words and all that stuff. So it can get kind of a little janky and, and my very, very simple mind has a hard time wrapping around us. Um, and so I found this paraphrase. It's not mine, this is somebody else of paraphrasing um, Ephesians. And we're gonna look at it. I'm gonna put it up on the screen and I wanna read through this again so that you can kind of get a high idea of let it sink in of, of how amazing this passage is. Again, think of this as a song doxology uh, of, of what Paul is trying to say. It says this. This is just a complete rephrase of, of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. How marvelous God is. His spirit has provided everything needed for life. Every good thing has been made available in Christ. We praise such a God. Right from the first, God has been busy devising a way to draw us home to himself so that we may live with him and for him. Through Christ, he has made his family, as a result, we owe God praise for the way he freely gave himself to us in Christ. In Christ's death, God's abundance care for us is known. God gave himself for us to bring, in, bring us back and make us his people. What lavish love he has for us. We honor you, O God. In his unfathomable wisdom, God has made known his plan and desire to bring all things together in Christ. This includes everything in our world and everything in God's world. Every, amazingly, God's plan includes us and gives us a share of what he is doing. For this we owe God praise for the hope that is ours in Christ. When we heard about the truth from God and believed the good news about his plan, God marked us as his own by giving us his spirit. The spirit's dwelling in us is a pledge from God that he will complete his plan and that one day we will truly live with God. For this we owe God praise. Our God, we do worship you. You see, we see here that God is pursuing us even before we were born. And that God places seals when we believe. And that we have an inheritance that we can't even imagine. Our response then should be, everything we do glorifies God. Every emotion, every fiber, everything that we do should glorify God. One of my all-time favorite stories. Uh, those of you that know my background as a, a runner and a running coach, aren't gonna be surprised that it's chariots of fire. 
about runners. Go figure. Uh, but what I love about it is it's about Eric Little. He's one of the main characters in the story. And uh, he's a very, very devout Christian. He competed in the 1924 Olympics. And uh, one of the things he's famous for is that they, when they found out that the, uh, his preferred race, the 100-meter dash, was going to be held on a Sunday, he withdrew from the race because that was the Lord's Sabbath. That's how committed he was. He had a sister, and his sister also was very, very committed and kind of felt like Eric was wasting his talents that the Lord had given him because he shouldn't be out running. He should be on the mission field. And if you remember the movie, you remember this line. I love this line. It's one of my favorite in the entire movie. He's having this little bit of a discussion with his sister who thinks he should give up running and go straight to the mission field. And Eric says this. He says, I, Jenny, I know but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. What Eric was acknowledging is, look, God made me this way. And when I I do this, I'm glorifying God. One of the ironic things about it is Eric Little had one of the worst running forms out there. In fact, it's been quoted that he is the ugliest runner to ever win an Olympic medal. but everybody was mesmerized when he ran. And it wasn't for the beauty of his form, it was like there's something about his running that drew people in. And we know it's because he did it for God's glory, not his own glory. He felt God made him in such a way that everything he did was for God's glory. And what this passage is telling is that's how we should be. Paul intended this passage to push us to worship with our everything. And it starts with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends with, to the praise of glory. That's this doxology. Now when I, today I was scheduled to be on the worship team with Esther, and and, uh, James called me up and said, it was a few weeks ago, hey, could you speak that day? And so I said, yeah, I can, I can speak. And so I called Esther and I said, hey, I, I can't do worship um, because I'm gonna be speaking. Now her response was something along the lines of, um, if you pull out, I'm gonna tear your right arm off your body and beat you over the head with it. Uh, now, you might think that's very harsh. There's actually a measure of grace in there because I'm left-handed. So she wasn't taking my dominant arm, um, just that. Uh, but it was enough for me to say quickly, you know, of course I can speak and do worship, no problem. And I walk around like this now hiding my arm. Uh, But thank you for letting me keep both my arms this week. Now, as I was in the text, I realized how appropriate it is to both speak and respond in worship because that's what this passage is talking about. And I'm gonna have the worship team come up because that's exactly what we're gonna do is we are gonna end, of course, we always end with worship, but there's a reason why we typically end our services with worship. Because of the significance of our response on hearing God's story and our role in it should immediately get us to respond to worship. Why? Because God's character is best described as a God for us. God has intentionally chosen and planned to to go to great lengths and achieve salvation for people. This is not an afterthought on his part, but the very essence of who God is. He is a gregarious God. God created people, created us to be in relationship with him. God will have a people for himself. He will, have, be, he will share his inheritance with those people. And when that happens, people will see just how loving and relational he is. 
You see, the language of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 looks forward to that day. And that's why Paul says, to God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, amazing passage. Just in the first few chapters of Ephesians, of, of, of a doxology of why we should praise you, of sharing your story, just putting a summary into just a few short verses of how amazing of a God you are and why we should be worshiping you. And Lord, when we look at the, the, the fact that you've, you've brought us in as your family, you have chosen us before creation, that you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit, that we belong to you, and that the Holy Spirit just being a foretaste of the inheritance to come that we can't even imagine, Lord, we stop and just go, wow. Lord, let me reflect back to you and bring glory and praise to you from every fiber of what you poured into me and what you have created me to be part of your story. Lord, help me to be able to reflect back to you. In your name we pray, amen.